Here's uh, Dr. Luke writing in Acts chapter 21, verse 10. Uh, He writes, after we had been there, Caesarea, he's referring to a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Let's uh, pray together this morning. Lord, we're so thankful that we have have your word. that we can read and we can study, and we realize there are many places in the world that uh, don't have that privilege. And we thank you for uh, your word that is the lamp to our feet and uh, uh, guides our pathway. Lord, we're thankful for the promises of God this morning. Thank you that you've promised never to leave us, never to forsake us. Thank you for your promise to provide for our every need. Thank you for your promise for believers that you're working everything that happens in our life for our spiritual good and your glory. Thank you for the promise that you're coming back again someday. And Lord, we look forward to your return. Lord, in the meantime, may we be faithful in um, living for you. May we be faithful living a purpose-driven life to know Christ and to make him known. And Lord, uh, thank you for um, this gift that we're able to give to unknown nations, Lord. Uh, I truly believe we will we will meet people in heaven that are there because uh, some folks at Community Bible Church collected some change and put it in a box. And uh, so thank you for that. Lord, open up our hearts now to your word. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We have been uh, looking at the book of Acts and uh, for probably about five or six months now. Just a little review uh, that will help us here. Acts 1.8 is the outline of the book. And uh, Acts 1.8, Dr. Luke, who's the author of uh, the book of Acts, writes these words, the words of Jesus. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, to the unknown nations. And that's the outline of the book. The church started in Jerusalem. That's chapters 1 through 7. And uh, Pentecost, and Peter stands up and gives that sermon in, on uh, Pentecost, and 3,000 people come into the church. And then persecution comes, primarily through Saul, and the church scatters to Judea and Samaria. That's chapters 8 through 12. And then chapters 13 through the rest of the book, there's 28 chapters in Acts, the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. And how does that happen? Through Paul's missionary journeys, primarily. He takes three of them. We've already looked at the first two this morning. We're going to look at the closing of Paul's third missionary journey. And so we're going to outline Acts 21, and then we're going to conclude by looking at some life lessons for us. And so uh, we'll be reading a lot of the text this morning because Dr. Luke is writing a story. And in order to get the flavor of the story, we have to read a lot of the text. So we'll be reading uh, most of Acts chapter 21. So uh, let's look at our outline here, and I think in the bulletin you have a little map here. That might be helpful at the beginning if you want to take that out. 
because our first point here is Paul's journey across the Mediterranean Sea. And so Dr. Luke in the first seven verses really gives us Paul's itinerary. Paul's traveling about 600 miles. Uh, we left off last week in Miletus where Paul met with the leaders of the Ephesian church. And they had this uh, wonderful meeting and a very tearful farewell. Paul had some words for them. And Paul said, this is the last time we're ever going to see each other. And he had some very encouraging words for uh, the leaders of the Ephesian church. And so Paul leaves Miletus and he makes this journey. We're going to end up at the end of Acts 21 in, in Jerusalem. That's where he's headed uh, so he travels about 600 miles by, by boat and ends up in Jerusalem. So let's, uh, let's read the text here. And, uh, beginning in verse one, Dr. Luke writes, after we had torn ourselves away from them, those are the Ephesian elders that they had this tearful farewell with. We put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes, and from there to Patara, we found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus, the island of Cyprus in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, they're going south of Cyprus, and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them for seven days. Through the Spirit... They urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out to the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard on the ship and they returned home. We continued on our voyage from Tyre, landed at Ptolemus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. So, Dr. Luke has basically given us the, the itinerary in those first seven verses of, of Paul's journey. And he's, he's heading back to Jerusalem, and he's on a time schedule. He has an offering for the churches at Jerusalem that the, the churches that he had started and ministered to wanted to give to the church at Jerusalem. He also wants to get to Jerusalem before the celebration of the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days after the Feast of Passover. So Paul's driving on a timetable, and he wants, he wants to get to Jerusalem uh, before the celebration of the Feast of Pentecost. Well, that leads us to Paul's advance warning from the prophet Agabus. This is an interesting uh, passage of Scripture. So uh, leaving the next day, verse 8, we reach Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. So we've met Agabus before on our study of Acts. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 11. And in Acts chapter 11, Agabus predicts that there's a severe famine that's coming into Judea and really throughout most of the Roman Empire. And that famine happened. And now Agabus is there. And uh, he makes another statement to Paul. He gives an advance warning to Paul. He does it through uh, an illustration, a visual illustration. What does he do? He comes over and he takes Paul's belt. And then what he does is he takes his own hands and feet and he wraps it up, his own hands and feet with that belt, ties his own hands and feet. And this is what he said. The Holy Spirit says, in this way, 
the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. He's given a warning to Paul. Paul, you're headed to Jerusalem, but guess what's going to happen there? You are going to run into trouble. You're going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And uh, this is nothing new for Paul because Paul knew that basically wherever he went, trouble happened. Uh, earlier in Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul says, I'm compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Paul says, I know wherever I go, it's not going to be fun. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be tribulation. There's going to be prison. Um, if you go through the book of Acts, Six riots are related to Paul's preaching in, in his missionary journeys on the book of Acts. And one commentator said wherever Paul went, either revival or, or a riot broke out. And that's basically true. And so these believers, uh, first of all, these believers in Tyre warns, warned Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, there's some bad things that are going to happen to you there. And now Agabus says, hey, you better be careful because um, they're going to tie you up. You're going to get handed over to the Gentiles. And so uh, here's Paul. What does, what does Paul do? This is interesting. Commentators are divided on how Paul should have responded to this. There's a few commentators that said, uh, Barnhouse is one of them. He writes, Paul was a stubborn man and determined to have his own way. <laughs> it's a little harsh on Paul. He's like, they're telling him, don't go, don't go. And Paul's like, nope, I've got my own agenda, I'm going. And they're saying he's not listening to the Holy Spirit. I really don't believe that's, that's, that's true if I had to go on one side of the equation here. Um, one uh, commentary writes, did Paul disobey the Holy Spirit by going to Jerusalem? No, more likely the Holy Spirit warned these believers about the suffering Paul would face in Jerusalem and they drew the conclusion that he should not go because of the danger there. Maybe they were speaking from their heart. They loved the Apostle Paul, and they didn't want to see him go through pain and toil and hardship. It also speaks to the point is that we need to be very careful when determining God's will and direction for our life of who we're listening to. And uh, sometimes well-meaning people and can give us advice about what we should do, and it's out of concern. But uh, what we need to do is listen to the Spirit. I remember a number of years ago, and I've shared this, my, my, uh, my folks toward the end of their, their ministry um, were involved in a ministry of encouragement to missionaries. And they were connected with team mission, and two times a year they would take missionary trips over. Their field was the Middle East. They would travel over to the Middle East and spend about three or four months there, and they would meet with missionaries and just pray with them, encourage them. And uh, they would do that in Turkey, in Jordan, and uh, throughout the Middle East. And then an opportunity came up for my folks to pastor a church in the Middle East. And I remember when uh, my dad and mom told me, and I've got uh, five other siblings, adult siblings, that they're going to move to the Middle East for a while and pastor a church. And I was fine with that, but some of my uh, stepsisters were a little worried. <laughs> mom and dad are going to the Middle East, and, 
And, uh, you know, what about us? And they were kind of saying, putting pressure on them, you know, don't go. And uh, my folks did go. They went to the United Arab Emirates, which is one of the most modern countries in the world, and spent a year there and really had uh, probably the most fulfilling year of ministry in my dad's life. But uh, so here's some believers, well-meaning believers, and they're telling Paul, don't go. And how does Paul respond? And we read it in our scripture reading. He's like, hey, I'm I'm, I'm willing to die in Jerusalem. Uh, This is what God wants me to to do. And so uh, here Paul arrives in Jerusalem, uh, verse 17, Paul's arrival at Jerusalem uh, this is an interesting passage as well, and um, we have to read it to get the full flavor of it. We don't have time to really unpack it, but here's what happens. So Paul arrives in Jerusalem, and it says, The brothers and sisters, verse 17, received us warmly. So Jerusalem is kind of headquarters. Uh, that's where the church started, and, and Paul is there, and he wants to give a report of what God's been doing through the missionary trips. Says the next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. He was the leader of the church of Jerusalem. He was the half brother of Jesus. And all the elders were present. And Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through this ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. So Paul's telling them he's, he's been gone for, uh, three or four years on this trip and he's telling them, uh, all that God did. And, uh, the church leaders rejoice. Now they've got a little bit of a sticky problem here uh, based on some actually false accusations. And so let's continue to read. Here's what the Jerusalem leaders said to Paul. You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. So a lot of, of Jewish people in Jerusalem have come to faith in Christ. Remember, Acts is a transition book. It covers 30 A.D. to 60 A.D., and it's this transition from what the Old Testament Judaism to the New Testament church and uh, all the freedom that we have in Christ. And that was a difficult transition for some of the Jewish believers. So some of the Jews, Jewish believers, have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So here's this accusation against Paul that he's telling, um, he's telling certain people, certain Jews, not to follow their Jewish customs. And that's not what Paul said at all. Here's what Paul stated. Uh, Paul stated that circumcision in Jewish law does not save. But he has not been telling or teaching Jews to abandon Jewish customs. Why is Paul wanting to get to Jerusalem? Because he's still celebrating some Jewish holidays. He wants to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. So it's actually a false accusation. So kind of in order to kind of quell these Jewish believers who aren't happy with Paul, they ask Paul to do something. It'll sound strange to us, but what they're trying to do is to um, manage this underground movement against Paul. And so, verse 23, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. That refers to the Nazarite vow. Take these men, join them in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so they can have their heads shaved. 
Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. So uh, the Nazarite vow said you didn't, you didn't shave your head, you let your hair grow, that was part of it. But then there came a time where you would shave your head and you would go to the temple and you would present your hair as an offering to God. And so what they're telling Paul is like, go with these guys, participate in this Jewish tradition and ritual. There was a little bit of expense involved, pay their expenses. And that way, these Jewish believers that are that are questioning you, that'll that'll calm them down. Uh, so that's uh, that's verse verse twenty four. Everyone then will know there's no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourselves are living in obedience to the law. Then they reaffirm in verse twenty three the decision of the Jerusalem Council. We looked at that earlier in the book of Acts. It says the next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end, and the offering would be made for each of them. So Paul participates in this. Jewish ritual to try to quell the the crowd. Well, we're going to discover, and we're going to uh, read the rest of the text here, it didn't work. <laughs> it, it didn't quell the, the Jewish uh, crowd. And so let's look at anarchy and arrest in Jerusalem in verse 27. When seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. So here's some Jews, not from Jerusalem, they're from Asia. Perhaps uh, these are the same Jews who gave Paul all sorts of trouble in Ephesus in Acts 19. We don't know for sure, but they see Paul at the temple, they stir up the whole crowd, and they seize Paul shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. Here's riot number six in the book of Acts. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, here's a false accusation based on assumption. He has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city with Paul, and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So uh, the Jewish temple had three outer courts. The inner court was for Jewish men to offer a sacrifice. Court number two was for the Jewish women and their families to pray and to worship. The outer court, court number three, was for the Gentiles. And they could come into the third court, but if they went beyond that, they were in big trouble, and uh, uh, that was breaking Jewish custom and Jewish law. And so they're, they're accusing Paul of bringing a Gentile into the inner courts of the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Picture this in your mind. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut while they were trying to kill him. They're trying to kill Paul. News reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some of his officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. And when the riders saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. If it wasn't for this Roman commander, and of course God's in control of this whole picture, if it wasn't for this Roman commander, these people would have killed Paul. And so they're beating him to a pulp. And finally the Roman commander comes with some of his guards and soldiers and the beating stops the commander came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. 
Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Who are you? And what have you done that these people are so angry with you, this angry mob? Some in the crowd, verse 34, shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. So they put, they put Paul on their shoulders to, to protect him, and they carry him back to his barracks. The crowd that followed him kept shouting, get rid of him. Well, Agabus's prophecy prediction came true. Paul got to Jerusalem, but it wasn't a pretty picture. And uh, we'll look at the rest of this story and pick it up next week because uh, Paul wants to speak to this angry mob. And he identifies himself to the commander, this Roman commander. And then he says, is it okay if I speak to this mob, the mob that had just tried to kill him? And in chapters 22 and 23 uh, is the story of uh, Paul uh, speaking before this angry mob. And then Paul begins to go on trial. He's facing more trials at the end of the book of Acts than former President Trump. <laughs> he goes before the Sanhedrin. He goes through before Festus. He goes before Caesar. He, he's appearing to all these different uh, Leaders that put Paul on trial, and uh, we'll we'll look at that as we conclude uh, the, the book in the next month or so. Well, this morning, just in the next uh, ten or fifteen minutes, uh, I want to just share a couple life lessons from Acts chapter twenty-one. And so, what what can we learn from this, and uh, uh, how can we apply it to our lives? And so, here's life lesson number one from this story. Uh, it's this, you haven't found something worth living for until you found something worth dying for. I don't know who the uh, original person that made that statement, but that's a great statement. You haven't found something worth living for until you have found something worth dying for. That was the mindset of the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, 24. He says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the grace of God. And here when he uh, meets with these believers and when he's uh, facing uh, Agabus that's saying, you're going to face trouble in Jerusalem, Paul. You're going to be handed over to the Gentiles. What does Paul say? Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for Jesus. There's part of the um, motivation that made Paul such a great missionary. I'm going to Jerusalem. And uh, what did Paul write in Philippians? For me to live is Christ, to die is what? Gain. (laughs) It's okay if they kill me, because guess what? I'm going to be with Jesus. You haven't found something worth living for until you found something worth dying for. I've shared this list before. I've given this some some thought, but I don't know if you've ever asked yourself the question, what would I die for? What is it that I would give my life for? And I came up with three things, and they're all, no surprise, uh, it's a short list, uh, alliterated, uh, 
Here's the first one, family, family. Uh, Specifically written to husbands, and Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, giving instructions to husbands, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When you take that marriage vow in front of those people, you should be willing as a husband to say, I'm not only going to live for this woman, but I would be willing to die for her. That's the kind of love that Christ has for us. And so uh, we, would die, we would die for our families. Um, I would die in a minute for my grandchildren. Now, my children, I have to think about it, but <laughs> definitely the grandchildren. We would die for our families. What else could we say would be willing to die for? How about our faith? Acts chapter 7, the first, the first martyr was Stephen. And he gave, a, he gave a, a sermon before the Sanhedrin. They weren't very happy with it. Didn't go over well. And what they do? They, they killed him. And that's happening all over our world today. We don't hear much about it in the news, but Christians are dying for their faith. Open Doors Ministry estimated in 2022 that there were 6,000 Christians martyred for their faith, killed because they're followers of Jesus. I think that's probably low, to be honest with you. So family, faith. How about freedom? Maybe some of us would have to think about that, but we, we are seated, seated here this morning because People in our military gave their lives for the freedoms that we enjoy, the freedom of speech, the freedom of worship, the freedom of assembly. And thousands of men and women gave their lives so that we have freedom. So we need to be thankful for our military. We need to be thankful for our law enforcement and first responders. They put their lives on the line every day. It's happening more frequently today in our culture. Just this last week in Minnesota, two police officers and a paramedic responding to a domestic violence call, doing their job. And someone inside that house has a gun, a rifle, and shoots them down and kills them. And so we need to be uh, praying for our our military and our first responders and those that uh, are in law enforcement. Well, uh, you haven't found something worth living for until you found something worth dying for. Someone has said the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. And uh, we know the story of those missionaries, and it was January uh, 6th, I believe, no, January 8th, 1956 in Ecuador, uh, those five men that uh, were trying to reach the Aka Indians, a savage people that had no connection to the outside world. And the short story is that all five of them, uh, you know, Nate Saint, is, uh, one of them, and uh, Jim Elliott, who said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. They all lost their lives on the beaches, uh, savagely killed by the Aka Indians. 
But guess what happened out of that as that story went around the world? Thousands of young people decided to give their life to missions because of the sacrifice of those five missionaries, and the gospel spread. Well, here's our, our second and last one this morning, life lesson, and this is a challenging one, but uh, it's the suffering is often a part of the Christian life. Suffering, and Paul had his fair share of it, suffering is often part of the Christian life. Let me just read you a brief autobiographical section of, of uh, what Paul wrote to the uh, Corinthians church in 2 Corinthians, a second letter. Um, here's Paul's resume. Let's see if you want to uh, interested in joining up with, with, uh, with this. I've worked more harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews, 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger from the city, the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. Anybody want to be Paul's partner? (laughs) Oh, suffering is often a part of the Christian life. And and Jesus told us, um, warned us, John 16, 33, in this world, you will have what? Trouble, tribulation. But then he encourages, take heart, I've overcome the world. So we should not be surprised. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, everybody who lives godly is going to suffer persecution. So why would a God, a good God, allow suffering to be a part of our, our life? Why would God allow us to go through pain and stress and heartache and all sorts of difficulties that we face in this life? You know, there are some preachers that preach the prosperity gospel. Come to Jesus and you will be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That will attract a great crowd. The only problem is that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, Peter says we've been called to suffer. And so just in the next five minutes here, and we'll, we'll conclude, why would, why would God allow suffering to be a part of our, our calling? Now, I don't have all the answers on this. There are some things that we go through in this life and we will never understand why, perhaps until we get to heaven. Um, Paul writes about now we know in part, but then when we get to heaven, we'll know fully. And so I really believe when we get to heaven, all those questions that we wonder why God would do this or why would God allow this will be answered. But here's just a couple thoughts of perhaps why God would allow suffering in our life. Here's the first one. Suffering gives us an eternal perspective. Suffering gives us an eternal perspective. Here's uh, Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. So whatever we're facing... 
Paul calls them light and momentary. Um, man, the guy's name just left me. Uh, Mark uh, Lowry says that his favorite verse in the Bible is, and it came to pass. <laughs> Anything you're going through is, is ultimately temporary. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us what? An eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen. Don't, don't fixate on the things of this world, the possessions of this world, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. So what does suffering do? Suffering um, begins to turn our mindset toward eternity. It gives us an eternal perspective. I'll take the time to share this. I think we've got time this morning. Um, so yesterday afternoon, uh, Diane and I were at a memorial service. Memorial service in... Um, to come see the church called The Point. And it was for an individual that I've never met in my life, but I've prayed for him. Memorial service for, let me see if I can get this right, our daughter-in-law's brother's, let me see, it's our daughter-in-law's brother-in-law's brother. There we go. Our daughter-in-law's brother-in-law's brother. His name was Frank. Frank served our country well in the military. Frank did not grow up in a Christian upbringing, and so he was on that search and journey like many people are, trying to find true purpose and meaning in life. Our oldest son is connected with some folks at the point, and he goes to a weekly Bible study with uh, six or eight guys that are in this Bible study uh, weekly, and... um, our oldest son was burdened for Frank. Frank had had a lot of health problems and he's had some heart issues. And uh, recently Frank uh, ended up in a hospital in a coma and they didn't think he was going to make it. And so our son Nate shares with this group of six or seven guys, hey, would you be, would you be praying for Frank? And Frank, Frank doesn't know Jesus and we please, please pray for Frank. A couple of weeks later at the same Bible study, a fellow who had not been there at that previous Bible study, as they've been praying for Frank, showed up and also knew Frank. And he says, hey, I need you guys to be praying for my, my friend. He, he's, he's in really bad physical shape and he's just going through a lot right now. And they say, what's his name? And he says, Frank. And they're like, is this Frank? The same Frank as you're talking about? And it was, it was the same guy. This group of guys for uh, six or seven weeks begins praying for Frank. Um, the leader of that Bible study is actually a, a family that came here for a number of years while they lived in, in Manchester with Adam, uh, Adam Seek, and they've since have uh, came here for a while. They've since moved to Tecumseh, and Adam's very involved at the church, the point. And so um, one, the one night, and Adam shared this yesterday, the one night when they had to cancel their weekly Bible study, Frank calls up Adam and says, uh, can I come to the Bible study? And he says, well, we're not having it this week, but come anyways. Adam and Frank meet one-on-one and spend a couple hours, Frank telling him his story, Adam listening, and Adam then sharing the good news of the gospel with Frank. And the next Sunday, this is probably late December, the following Sunday, Frank comes into the point. 
sneaks in, sits in the back, and uh, that Sunday, Frank receives Jesus as his Savior. The following Sunday, this is January 7th, Frank is baptized at the point. The following week, Frank dies of a heart attack and goes home to be with Jesus. Now, what got Frank interested in spiritual things? Guess what it was? It was suffering. It was having the heart issue and the heart problem and being in the hospital and coming face-to-face with his own mortality. And all of a sudden, his focus changes from this world to being very open to truth. Suffering gives us an eternal perspective in life. Secondly, suffering refines our character. Suffering refines our character. Job 23, verse 10. Job, who went through incredible suffering, writes, But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Refers to the refining process of gold. You heat up gold to 1,947 degrees Fahrenheit, and the impurities come to the top, and you, you take those impurities off until you have 24 karat gold. Suffering is the same way. It refines our character. 1 Peter 5.10. Peter, this theme of the book is pain with a purpose. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a while will himself restore you and make you firm, strong, and steadfast. And so what happens when we go through suffering and um, God's working on our character, isn't he? He's refining us. He's strengthening us. And uh, that's, um, that's God's uh, refining process. He often uses suffering. So it was the German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, in 1888, first stated, out of life's school of war, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Now, some of you are familiar with that because it's a song that uh, Kelly Clarkson sings in in 2011. That wasn't original with her. That was original with Frederick Nietzsche in 1888. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's what the scriptures are saying. When it comes to suffering, it strengthens us. Our two oldest grandsons are, uh, as we speak right now, at a, a wrestling over in Kalamazoo at Wing Stadium in a big wrestling tournament and we've gone to many of their matches and uh, it's fun to watch them it's fun to watch your your kids your grandkids wrestle when they're winning it's fun when they're losing i have to tell you it's not as much fun when their head is being pressed down into the mat when they're on their back squirming and they're you know feels like looks like their shoulders coming out of socket and so I asked uh, Luke, and they've won far more than they've lost, but I asked Luke the other day, I said, like, well, you know, what's it feel like? I've never wrestled. Well, I fought my brother a few times, but never official wrestling. Uh, what's it feel like being on the bottom there, you know, where you just can't move? He goes, oh, Grandpa, you, you just fight, and, and guess what? That's what makes you stronger, he says. I was like, okay. <laughs> makes you stronger when you're trying to get out of that uh, hold or... Get, 
uh, stop from getting pinned. And so suffering uh, refines our character. Lastly, suffering gives us the opportunity to become more like Jesus. That's really God's goal in our life, isn't it? Paul writes about that in Romans eight twenty nine. Our goal is to become like him. And what does suffering do? It, it, it gives us the opportunity to become like Jesus. In fact, we don't have time to read 1 Peter 3, but I have Peter's writing to persecuted believers, and he's saying, Jesus is our role model for suffering. And, and so uh, imitate him when suffering comes into your life. Here's Isaiah's description of uh, Jesus, the suffering Messiah, Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, let me read it in verse, verse 3. This is, this is this description of Jesus. He was despised and rejected by mankind. Now, you don't get through this life without experiencing rejection of some sort. And uh, Jesus certainly, well, he came to his own. His own said, no, thank you. His own did not receive him. He was a man of suffering. He was familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. People did not think very highly of Jesus. That's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus was. And when we go through pain and we go through suffering and we do it well, we become more and more like him. And the good news is when we are at that point in our life, that God is with us, Emmanuel. And here's his promise. So we sang earlier, standing on the promises, I'll conclude with this. But now, this is Isaiah 43.1, this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. He knows us by name. You belong to me. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, suffering, I will be with you. They will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Why? For I, the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, am with you. Remember the story of the three Jewish boys in Babylon, in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow down to the 90-foot golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar, thrown into the fiery furnace. And King Nebuchadnezzar comes and says, I thought there was only three of them in there. I see four. It was a picture of Jesus who protected those three young men and brought them out, and they did not even have the smell of fire on their clothes. Well, you haven't found something worth living for until you found something worth dying for. I trust you know Jesus because he gives us the ultimate reason to live. And I trust that whatever suffering you um, have experienced, many of us are experiencing, we will remember that um, God always has a purpose in our pain. And it's to give us an eternal perspective, and it's to change us in our character, and it's to help us become more like him. So here's what Job said in Job's horrific suffering 
And then we're going to play a video uh, by Matt Redmond entitled, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. The words are great, so listen to them carefully. It says that this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground and worshipped. And Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. One of the things we say to our Awana kids um, every Wednesday, and uh, I appreciate Ron Tindall's leadership in this, but he'll say, God is good. And they'll say all the time, and then we'll say all the time, God is good. And that's true. But unless you understand this part of it, that God allows suffering for our specific purpose and good, uh, we'll begin to question God's goodness. And so suffering is all of our, often a part of our lives, but is for our good. So uh, let's watch the, the song, listen to the words from Matt uh, Redman, and then we'll be... Uh, I'll close in prayer. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful where your streams are Abundance flow, blessed be your name. And blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place. Though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, turn back. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name, I'll say. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be your glory. 
thanks to you this morning. We do bless your name. Lord, for some of us right now in our lives, uh, the sun is shining down on us and life is going well, and we thank you for that. We recognize that every good and perfect gift comes from you. Lord, there are many here that are um, going through trials and walking on that road of suffering, Uh, some uh, a challenging road. And Lord, uh, I just pray that you would help us to trust you on that journey Recognize that you are a good God. Recognize that you have a plan and a purpose. And that like Job said, you are, the, you are the one that we praise, not just when things are going well, but also in the valley, because we can trust you. And so, Lord, I pray that that would bring great encouragement to our hearts today. Lord, bless us now as we uh, go our way, as we encourage one another through fellowship, and as we uh, make our journey through the rest of the day. Lord, help us to praise you and give you thanks for your goodness. We'll give you thanks. And all God's people said, Amen.